died around 1430, I should think. How do you know that? All these things belong to the Aztecs' early period. And that's what I call really knowing your subject. Ah, well, that was one of my specialities, Susan. What little I know about them doesn't impress me. Cutting out people's hearts. Oh, that was <clears throat> only one side to their nature. The other side was highly civilized. That was the tragedy of the Aztecs. Welcome to Who Worth Watching, where we're going through this 50-year-old show from the beginning to determine what's still worth watching for a modern audience. I'm the conniving high priest of the Time Lords, holding human sacrifices in the hopes that we'll be blessed with finding more of the lost Doctor Who stories. My co-host is Guy, high priest of normal people, who are, you know, the ones who just want to get through their weekend without having to watch a bad episode of old TV. I guide us through the series, and Guy makes the final determination of what's worth watching for normal people. Hello, Guy. Hello, Ron. So have you participated in any human sacrifices lately? I'll have to refer you to my counsel on that subject. <laughs> okay. So some context for today's story. First of all, I'm really excited to get to this one. I mentioned last week that this is the Aztecs, and I feel... This is the story where they really gelled and, and figured out what Doctor Who was. The character, the actors know what the characters are. Everything has kind of solidified. And this story, I think, is representative of, of the best of what Doctor Who becomes. And I say that even if you, and we don't know yet, you know, even if your determination is negative or someone doesn't like the story, still, this is a, a definitive Doctor Who story in a way that nothing before this has been. It's a little historical landmark. Exactly, yeah. And the funny thing is, they didn't necessarily realize that. I mean, it took them a while. So, for example, four episodes turns out to be kind of the ideal length of a Doctor Who story in the early days. And they keep doing longer ones for a couple of years, but eventually they settle sort of on, on four episodes as the default. Uh, John Lucarotti was the writer, and one of the things that really stands out in this story is that unlike so many shows of the day of that time, he wasn't doing slapdash stereotyped hack work about a little understood culture. He actually lived in Mexico. He highly respected their culture and history, and he was fascinated by how such an advanced people also had this thread of human sacrifice. So when he was asked to write this story, he decided to use it as an opportunity to explore the question, you know, what, how did human sacrifice fit in and what was that all about? Right. So I think that's about all we need to know going in. So let's get to our first episode, The Temple of Evil. <laughs> Well, it starts off, there's a, a desiccated old corpse lying on a table, and it's dressed up in some fancy duds. And this is uh, where the TARDIS has brought the crew for this latest story arc. And uh, it turns out Barbara is a, a specialist in Aztec history, and she can narrow down the time frame to around 1430, which is 90 years before Cortez comes and the civilization is doomed. <laughs> I'll also say right off the bat, there was something that I never really, 
I didn't understand why I hadn't noticed it previously, which is the very first shot, which is of the mask of the mummy, is pretty impressive. It's a great mask, but there's a shadow of a crew person right there that pulls back. And I and I wondered why I hadn't noticed that before. And I realized I always thought that was a character in the show who was sort of hiding from them as they came out of the TARDIS. So I just expected that to come back later. But no, mm. it was like a crew person. <laughs> you know. uh, uh, uh. Uh, and also that mask was based on a real mask from the British Museum. So they really went out of their way for authenticity in the show. Yeah, it looks good. So, yeah, you got uh, Barbara and Susan. They came out first, you know, and the f- very first thing they do is start stealing stuff from the corpse. <laughs> I'm not sure that's, you know, the right thing to do. <laughs> uh, and Barbara puts a bracelet on her arm, so that will become very significant for the rest of oh, the story. Yeah. Also, if I took something off of a desiccated corpse, I don't think I'd wear it immediately. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you might want to might want to run it under some water or something. <laughs> and what do you think about their discussion here, where you know Susan's saying, "Oh, these are people who who did sacrifices and cut out people's hearts," and and Barbara's response is sort of interesting. Uh, yeah, you know, she she is more uh, you know trying to see both sides of the story, and I mean, you know, there's. There often is in history, you know, look at even as, you know, say with slavery in the United States, uh, we can look back now and say, yeah, that was pretty lousy. But to the people at the time, they had such a different mode of thinking that, um, I mean, you can, you can still say there's no excuse for it, but people think differently throughout history, even though they can think clearly and well on a number of things, they still have their little quirks and traditions and, uh, you know, future generations are going to look at us the same way. (laughs) And it's interesting because Barbara's focus is that was only one side of their nature. She really, you know, wants to look at the whole picture, which comes back again when in the reign of terror, which will be a couple of stories from now, the French revolution, she, she sort of has the same approach. Um, And she says, it's the tragedy of the Aztecs. The whole civilization was destroyed, the good as well as the evil. (laughs) Yeah. And then Susan turns and sees some drawings on the wall. And she says, hey, look, cartoons. And they've got bubbles coming out of their mouths. And I just wanted to slap my face. (laughs) (laughs) Or her face. I don't know. Um, She's acting like she's five years old. And... The writers and everyone has just totally given up on the idea that she's a sophisticated alien <laughs> with advanced knowledge. <laughs> the two points in her defense. First, as a 51-year-old guy, I might have said the very same thing <laughs> when I noticed that. And second, I looked it up, and this is actual mm-hmm. fact. The Aztecs did use these speech balloons. They're called speech scrolls, but... Uh, this is actually, uh, you know, Susan being a vehicle for the edutainment. <laughs> so I'm okay with it. Mm-hmm. Okay, well. Uh, let's see. So then Susan finds a rotating door. And if you recall from the Keys of Marinus, you know, every two minutes somebody <laughs> was falling through a rotating door. So 
Yeah. In a way, it's like, oh, here we go again. However, and, and we'll talk about this more later when we talk about design, this door actually is really interesting. But instead of rotating horizontally the way the ones in the Keys of Marinus did, where you would lean back against the wall and then suddenly get flipped around, um, this one is vertical. Yeah, this is more like a garage door than a revolving door. Right, right. And it, it seems to have a counterbalance uh, so that it, it can be opened easily, and uh, that's a point I may come back to in a while. <laughs> yeah, yeah, later, yeah, that, <laughs> later there's some confusion there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, so Barbara goes through the door. She encounters an old dude in a pretty interesting costume who says, Woman, how came you here? The temple is sacred to the high priest Yatoxa. And, yeah. and I, uh, when he appeared, as soon as, as, as soon as he said that, I thought, oh, great. This is the stick up his butt high priest guy. And he is a high priest, but, uh, he turns out to be not the one with the attitude problem. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That'll be an interesting discussion as we get there. And he calls for guards who happen to be standing two feet away conveniently. <laughs> and uh, they, uh, are warriors. And they come in and grab Barbara, and then he sees that she's wearing that bracelet that she took off the corpse. Then we go to the TARDIS, the rest of the crew comes out, they all go through the rotating door, but Barbara is gone, nothing is there. And they walk out of the room and they see the Aztec city. And unfortunately, what we see is a cloth painting. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Very obvious cloth painting. Yeah, that's it's not a not a bad painting, but it is obviously a painting. And yeah, we'll we'll come back to that in our discussion of of the design. And there's also a black boulder sitting there, which is going to become significant, but we don't know what it yeah. is yet. <laughs> I think I, I think I guessed pretty fast, <laughs> but I'm not I'm not sure. Maybe I'm just maybe I'm misremembering. <laughs> well, knowing that, you know, the Aztecs is all about human sacrifice, you can make your guesses. <laughs> and here, the, here's the point, which is what the entire story is oriented around, which is once they've all come through that rotating door, it shuts and they can't open it. Yeah. You can only open it from the inside somehow. Yeah. Which is good if you're trying to preserve the remains of an ancient god. Yeah. Yeah. And so the entire four-episode story is about them figuring out how to get back through that door. <laughs> yeah. The old dude we saw earlier shows up, and now he has a very different attitude. And he bows and says, The high priest of knowledge, Otlock, humbly greets the servants of Yatoxa. Mm-hmm. And they are taken to meet Barbara. And on the way, they pass this hunchback dude... And Ian immediately, well, I mean, he, it's not hard to figure out, but Ian immediately says, he looks like the local butcher. We'll come back to this very Richard III in appearance. You know, Richard III traditionally is played as, as being a hunchback. And he's sort of the bad guy of the story. And he is a, he does a great job as an actor named John Ringham. And every review I've read about this story says that he just steals the entire show. Well, I agree with those reviews. I I think he is absolutely fantastic. I mean, uh, just about every scene he's in, you just want to smack him, which is <laughs> which is what he's in t- he's going for. So yeah, well, exactly because uh, the direct he wasn't sure what to do with this character, 
And the director said, your goal is to be hated by every child in England. (laughs) (laughs) He tried. He he really, really put some effort into it. (laughs) I, 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 you know, this may be something I should save for the end of the uh, podcast, but uh, I'll tell you right now, I think he's easily my favorite villain so far in Mm -hmm. the shows I've seen. Oh, yeah. Not, not hard to say, I think. Okay, having built him up, we'll we'll see what happens here as we go along. <laughs> so his name is Tlatoxel. Now, a, 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 an admirable but annoying thing is that the writer created very realistic Aztec names for these people, but that also means they're very hard to pronounce. Yeah. And in fact, the actors randomly pronounce his name <laughs> throughout the story. Yeah, yeah, I notice a lot of cases where they just leave off the initial T. They'll just say Latoxel. Right, because yeah, if you're an English speaker, if you're an English speaker, Tlatoxel is hard to say. And in <laughs> fact, uh, I may just refer to him as the executioner uh, <laughs> once in a while because that's that's his role, and it's a little easier to say. Yeah, this story, as we'll see, is is really a story of two priests. Tlatoxel is the priest of sacrifice, and Otlock, who we've already met, is the priest of knowledge. And essentially, this story is a debate between the two of them throughout. And Tlatoxel asks Otlock when the next rain is going to happen. Otlock being the priest of knowledge. And uh, so we kind of assume kind of a scientist, it seems, because he's able to work out when things like rain are going to occur. And he says it's going to happen at sunset. So the executioner (laughs) says, okay, I'm going to bring... Barbara, the, you know, reincarnation of Yatoxa before the people, right before it rains. Mm -hmm. So we bring her out, we introduce her, then it's going to rain. And that's going to show everyone that the gods are on our side. Because, you know, there must have been some recent change in management and leadership. And the people aren't totally confident, I guess, in these high priests yet. And he wants to prove that the gods are on their side. I guess the change was that Yatoxa died. And that must have been relatively recently. Yeah, that would make sense because we find out that the tomb was built by a man who only died recently. Mm-hmm. And he'll also, as a bonus, he'll do a human sacrifice, which will help bring on the rain. And Otluck says, but I tell you, the rains are going to fall whether or not there's a sacrifice. And here we get to an interesting point, you know, I'd, I'd like to discuss. The executioner <laughs> says he doesn't care. He just wants to make an offering to their God. He wants their God to be happy. This is a convenient time to do it. And, you know, it works for the people that it'll rain. And this brings up the question of whether he is actually a believer or not. And I I think from some of our discussion that that we might have different opinions about this one. (laughs) Yeah, I I don't know. I'm I'm inconclusive about it. I think he has maybe a smidgen of belief, but a lot of evil and, uh, you know, just will to power to go along (laughs) with it. Well, I certainly agree with the evil and will to power. My take is I think he is a believer, and I don't think there's anything in the story that shows him not to be, but he's a believer, and this is kind of weird, but, you know, maybe not out of character for this sort of person, who is willing to trick people into also believing, right? He has no problem Mm -hmm. with magic tricks or, you know, saying, oh, it's going to rain, so we're going to pretend that our sacrifice caused the rain. 
if that will get people to go along. But I, but I, but my take is that he believes it's real and that it is therefore valid to fool people into agreeing with you because you're fooling them into believing the correct thing. Yeah, that, I, I could see that. Yeah, but I, he I never can't... explicitly says this, so it's up to us yeah. as a viewer to decide. Yeah. And conveniently, way, everything he does leads to him having power. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, so this is kind of funny because the crew walks into a room and Barbara is all dolled up in this fantastic sun god costume. And this is actually the second time this has happened because we remember in Keys That's of right, Marinus, yeah. they come into a room and she's all dressed up. <laughs> the, the brain slugs episode. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, you know. It's only been minutes for all we know, but Barbara is already knows her status and everything. She's, she has a bunch of people around her. She says, leave us. And they <laughs> immediately leaves and it's clear she's in charge. So she's, she's figured this all out pretty quickly. <laughs> yeah. And she lets the crew know they think I'm a reincarnation. And you know, it, I, I'm embarrassed. I've seen this story several times. It wasn't until this time that I totally understood that the corpse, the mummy that they found when they came out of the TARDIS is Yatoxel is the person she's supposed to be a reincarnation of. I never quite put that together. I just thought it was a random ah. corpse. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's why it's got the the one-way door and all that. I mean, yeah. it's very important to keep that uh keep that body protected. Right. Susan says, "But the priest was a man." And Barbara says, "The form the spirit takes isn't important," which I think was probably accurate. I think even historically in many cultures it didn't really matter to them even if they were misogynistic cultures, if, you know, a God could be in female form and that wasn't a problem. There is one kind yeah. of oddity here and it's, it, I don't know if it's a script or the actors, uh, Caroline Ford making a mistake. This is the only time the corpse was referred to as a priest after this, always a God. Hmm. So who knows what that's about? Yeah. I'm uh, you know, it could be, some posthumous deification thing, <laughs> you know, like they did with the Roman emperors. Well, Susan's the only one who says it, and she wasn't around at the time. So, so and, you know, it could just be like, oh, she's just identifying him as a priest, but then it turns out everyone considers him a god. And and I think that's also an interesting thing in any religion, especially historical religion, right? The the distinction, but that distinction is not always clear. When When does someone who has human form get considered to be a god, right? Right. And I'll just say the costumes are great. I mean, especially mm -hmm. after Keys and Marinus, where they were just scrambling to, you know, with no money to do all these different stories and everything. These costumes just stand out. Um, yeah. Yeah. They're, uh, they're pretty neat. I, I like the bird mask in particular. It's a helmet that's shaped like a bird head <laughs> and Ian ends up, uh, wearing it, uh, at various times. And he actually, uh, snatches it from a guard. Mm -hmm. uh, but that happens a little further down the road. Right. And a lot of people have said, oh, these are very accurate costumes. When I looked into it, it turns out that there's they don't really know totally. I mean, there are drawings and everything, so they have a sense, but they don't have a complete idea what the costumes were like. So they tried to be as authentic as they could, impressively authentic for this kind of show. Uh, but mm -hmm. they also just had to make stuff up because they didn't oh, know. Sure. But it's but it's all very consistent and believable. Nothing nothing stands out as being, you know, a silly choice or anything. Yeah. So they're trying to figure out how to get back to the TARDIS since the door was one way. And the problem is Barbara can't ask anyone because she's supposed to know everything. She's a god who came from that tomb. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, she can't go saying, well, how do we get back? <laughs> 
And then our two priests show up, you know, Otlock and Tlatoxel, and they explain that they want her to come with them to show up at a desired time right before it rains. They also say they want her servants to be allowed to to roam around the city. And I wasn't sure why they would want this, but I'm I'm kind of guessing that it's part of advertising that Yatoxa has been reincarnated and, you know, her servants are here, which, so even though she can't go and wander out among the people, if they see a servant of Yatoxa, that kind of confirms to them that this thing has happened, right? And that this, yeah. Uh, yeah. And that, uh, that would make sense because they're dressed in, uh, attire that isn't part of the native, uh, scheme. So uh, they definitely would get attention. Unlike many of the other historical stories, they, except for Barbara, they don't dress up in the local garb uh, for the most part. Mm -hmm. I think maybe Susan does a little bit, but but Barbara's really the only one who does. So the doctor is excited because with Barbara being considered a god, he says, we have everything we want. You know, Barbara (laughs) and Susan can stay here in safety and me and Ian will go out and figure out how to get into this tomb. And, and, you know, it's all going to work out. (laughs) Piece of cake. (laughs) <laughs> so then we cut to Tlatoxel and Otlock and Tlatoxel, I'm kind of getting able to say it, <laughs> is saying, you know, Ian, this servant of Yatoxa, should defeat our current leader of armies so he can lead the armies. You know, it would be appropriate for the servant of Yatoxa to do that. And this is one of the reasons I think he is a believer, because even though he's a friend of the current leader of the armies, whose name is Ixta, we'll meet him, he starts out by thinking this would be great, right? This will give our armies more power and, and authenticity. Mm-hmm. Ian shows up while they're talking and sort of accepts taking on this role without realizing what it means is he's got to fight the current leader <laughs> to the death so he can <laughs> take on the role. He thinks he's just accepting a job offer. Yeah. And Plotoxel tells Otlock to take the doctor to the Garden of Peace where he can sit in comfort. And it turns out that, uh, as we'll, we'll find out, if you are, if you have achieved the age of 52, and I don't know why 52 specifically, you get to go and sit in a garden for the rest of your life without any cares. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it is a I, nice garden. And I'm eligible, and you're almost eligible for that, so I'm ready to opt in for to, to Aztec care. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'd, 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 I'd hold out for the Garden of Video Games, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's not a whole lot to do in this garden. <laughs> <laughs> and the doctor doesn't seem totally enthusiastic about sitting in a garden the whole time. <laughs> uh, so then we cut to a room where Ixta, who is that current lead warrior of the armies, is practicing with a weapon. We're going to see this weapon a lot. I think you had looked into this. you want to describe what this thing is? So I did look up some information on this because uh, when I got a close-up look at it in one of the later episodes, I thought it looked a lot like a cricket bat. Um, It turns out it's a pretty accurate representation of a real Aztec weapon. It's called a maquahuitl. Uh, not a, another one of those, uh, Aztec words that doesn't roll off the English speaker's tongue. And in fact, the real device does look like a cricket bat, except that it has, uh, obsidian razor blades, uh, implanted all around the edges. So it's a little, a little bit more harmful than your garden variety <laughs> cricket bat. 
Yeah, and a challenge for them when they do combat and stuff in this story is that apparently those those weapons in reality were extremely fragile and they would just fall apart if they actually hit each other. So mm. they have to do all this thing where they're theoretically being very violent with these things while not actually hitting anything with them. <laughs> Ian shows up while Ixta is practicing, and Ixta wants to prove his skills to Ian, so he fights another uh, Aztecian. And there are some good fights in this these stories, but not this, this one. <laughs> They're in slow motion. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This I think this is the worst of this story arc. The worst, the worst fight scene. They. Uh, they're just they're they're pulling their punches, and that's almost inadequate to describe it because it's 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 almost uncomfortable to watch. <laughs> However, Ian is impressed, <laughs> <laughs> and I wasn't quite clear if Ixta killed his opponent or just knocked him out. They they leave that vague. Yeah, the impression I got, and I didn't really get this until uh, the second time I watched it. Uh, it looks to me like at the end, the opponent just kind of concedes by ducking out. And then Ixta wins by smashing a shield on the table. So uh, maybe this is some kind of ritualized combat where the goal <laughs> is to be the first guy to smash the shield. Right. I don't know. So one thing about Ixta, he's a really straightforward guy. So he brags to Ian about how... Ixta is going to be known as the warrior who killed Yatoxa's chosen warrior, which would be Ian. <laughs> so he's yeah. like, I'm going to kill you, and I'm going to get status from that. <laughs> well, at least he's forthright about it. <laughs> now, you had a note here about Ian's job, which I didn't totally pick up, so do you want to comment on that? Hmm. Well, now that uh, it's been established that at least temporarily Ixta and Ian will be uh, working side by side, uh, Ian will be helping him uh, deliver the human sacrifices to the altar, which uh, Ian doesn't seem terribly impressed by. <laughs> well, you know, everyone's got to have a starting job. <laughs> <laughs> uh, then we go to the Garden of Peace and Otlock and the doctor are there talking. There are a few people around, and the doctor is immediately very interested in a particular woman who turns out is Kamika. But um, this brings up an interesting thing that we'll talk about throughout this story. Uh, as Doctor Who develops, he is basically sexless in the in the sense, or that you know, he doesn't have romantic relationships. Mm -hmm. So you could consider this to be the only story in which he actually does have that mm. and that that brings up a sort of side question susan consistently refers to him as grandfather so uh <laughs> where where did the grandmother come in right is that something we ever find or no they they never get into that and you know i think we have to presume that maybe he was married or had a relationship and then when that was over he you know, lost interest in these things. Who knows? Mm. But Otlock says, Kamika is a companion of wit and interest, and her advice is the most sought out of anyone. Uh, so apparently, well, people are, who are over 52 are hanging out in this garden. Occasionally, someone will come and ask for their advice. Nice little thing to do. Yeah. The doctor wastes no time in chatting her up. <laughs> and they may... It's. It's not clear. We we know that the doctor wants to get some information on how to get into the tomb. 
But he also seems like he might be genuinely interested in her just for her own sake. Um, and I think eventually it turns out it's a little bit of both. Yeah, yeah. He certainly diverts the conversation to how to get into the tomb every single chance he can get. But he also <laughs> does seem to have a genuine affection for her as things go on. Yeah. And so he immediately does ask her about the temple. And she says, well, I know somebody who is the son of the man who built it. So, you you know, maybe I could set up a meeting with you. Yeah. And uh, this is a place where I'd like to insert a little digression, if I could, because I... I, uh, she, the, the name of the builder was Topau, T-O-P-A-U in the subtitles. And that name reminded me that back when I was in college, there was a band called Topau. Uh, so I wondered, is, yeah, and that's T apostrophe P-A-U. So I was wondering if the apostrophe could be omitting the O. Oh, maybe they took their name from this episode. So I did some research and it turns out that the name is from a science fiction show and a science fiction character, uh, but a different show. It's from Star Trek. Mm -hmm. And that episode uh, was aired uh, in September 67, three and a half years after this one. Uh, and it was written by uh, Theodore Sturgeon, a pretty well-known science mm -hmm. fiction writer, uh, who famously said 90% of everything is crud. <laughs> But anyway, uh, that, that whole chain of uh, links made me wonder if maybe Theodore Sturgeon had seen this episode and you know, that name stuck in his head. <laughs> it's a long shot. Totally but, possible. You know. Now, I will, uh, I will expand on that. He said 90% uh, of science fiction is crap, but then 90% of everything is crap. <laughs> yeah. So he was defending science fiction with that, <laughs> that quote. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but you're right. That is probably the most well-known quote from a really interesting writer, but not a not a topic for the moment to to dive into <laughs> that. And then the doctor says to Otlock, "She's a charming person, so intelligent and gentle." I mean, literally in like 30 seconds, he's just completely fallen for her. <laughs> Ian now shows up, and in the costume you referenced earlier, this full bird-like fighting regalia, very impressive, uh, really good looking. As it turns out, the, the warriors throughout this have kind of standard Aztec costumes, but the two main warriors, Ian and Ixta, have really fabulous costumes, and we'll talk more about Ixta's as we go along. And I saw some pictures of, of drawings from the time that implied to me that, that these kinds of costumes, uh, where both of them with the bird costume and Ixta has a, I think a leopard costume. It's a full head costume where, where it looks like a leopard head or a bird head. And from mm -hmm. some drawings I saw, I think that's an accurate representation of, of how they would do that. Yeah, I know. I know the, uh, the leopard head I've seen in other media. Um, so if, if it isn't historically accurate it's at least popular to represent it kind of like the the horned viking helmets mm -hmm. you know, that, mm -hmm. that they didn't actually wear they didn't oh you're crushing my <laughs> and you know <laughs> i'm uh swedish originally so i should know these things but uh, <laughs> right. uh let's see so ian talks to the doctor because he's concerned that there's going to be a human sacrifice today when the rain happens and he's supposed to participate and he's not happy about this and the doctor says, well, you got to do it because human sacrifice is essential here and it's their tradition. So you got to let them get on with it. Yeah. And this, uh, this struck me as an interesting contrast to how another 
Englishman uh, a century or so before handled a similar situation. It was uh, uh, Charles Napier. He was a British officer in India, and uh, he was having trouble with some of the locals. Uh, when somebody would die, uh, they would also burn his widow. And he objected to that, so he said, uh, quote, This burning of widows is your custom. Prepare the funeral pile. But my nation has also a custom. When men burn women alive, we hang them and confiscate all their property. So he had a different view, but then again, the doctor knows that nothing he can do here is going to make a difference. So the best they can do is just try to get out as soon as possible. But I love his approach. <laughs> uh, and the doctor goes as far as to make Ian promise he's not going to interfere with this sacrifice. So the doctor is totally bought in. And this is something that, uh, even though I think, you know, this story really sets the template for Doctor Who stories, the whole question about whether you can change things and whether you should go with the the existing culture and the time you're in, that that completely changes. You know, the, the doctor's stance here does not last. And it hasn't even been the case already. If you go back to the previous stories, you know, but we'll, we will get to this as, as we go along. So now we switch to Barbara and Susan who are alone together. And they, uh, Barbara talks about the benefits of being a God. <laughs> yeah. And, and Susan's really getting into it. She's modeling her clothes and she says, I'm rather mad about being handmaiden to a goddess mad about it in the good sense. <laughs> yeah. And then she says, beauty and horror developing hand in hand. So coming back to that theme of these both being a really advanced people and, you know, a kind of brutal people. Mm -hmm. And the doctor comes in and asks Susan to leave so he can talk to Barbara alone. And like his conversation with Ian, he tells Barbara, she must not interfere with this upcoming human sacrifice. And here we get to, you know, I think a really fascinating thing that the whole rest of the story is about. And Barbara says, no, I'm a goddess and I'm going to forbid this. There'll be no sacrifice this afternoon, doctor, or ever again. So she is going to put her foot down. <laughs> and I think an interesting thing she says, if I could start the destruction of everything that is evil here, then everything that is good could survive. So she really believes that she can just now come in and put a stop to the bad stuff and have only the good stuff go forward by decreeing it. Yeah, and uh, apparently whether that would entirely change history and make her never be born isn't <laughs> something that occurs to her. But, uh, oh yeah, well. but, you know, she's being very moral. She wants to make this change. And now here we get to one of the most famous early Doctor Who quotes. The Doctor says, but you can't rewrite history, not one line. Interesting thing about this, this is not just a debate in this story between the characters. It was a debate among the creators of the show. Hmm. So they were constantly saying, well, are we going to allow in our stories them to change history or not? And so this story is kind of exploring that debate. Hmm. And finally, the doctor says, what you are trying to do is utterly impossible. I know. Believe me. I know. <laughs> Sounds like he's been here before. Yeah. And now here, I, I think this is both interesting and disturbing. Barbara says, because he refers to her as Barbara, and she says, not Barbara, Yatoxa. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, she's getting into the role. And uh, there is logic to it. Like uh, you've probably seen Ghostbusters. They have a line uh, when, when 
someone <laughs> asks you if you're a god, you say yes. <laughs> She's definitely getting into it. <laughs> uh, so some guards come and escort Barbara to where the sacrifice is going to occur. So that's the altar, the, the rock that we saw earlier. And there's a guy splayed out on it, ready to be sacrificed. And Otlock introduces the reincarnated Yatoxa to the people who are very happy. And they introduce her with a snare drum roll, which I thought was a fun little touch. (laughs) (laughs) So Toxel, as the high priest of sacrifice, prepares to sacrifice this guy who's on the rock. Oh, he's offering up a a prayer to Tlaloc, the rain god. And he says, and we will honor you with blood. And upon hearing that, Susan, who up to now has been kind of kept in the dark about what's really going on over there, uh, she shrieks, realizing what's going on, and she runs to Barbara's side. Yeah, and Barbara stops Tlatoxel and says, there shall be no more blood spilt. She thinks she's helping this guy out who's about to be killed. He's really annoyed with her because he was about to go into the afterlife and have this great status, and she has taken that from him. And Tlatoxel says to him, well, you know, you can still die and so he takes the hint and he runs and jumps off the edge of the building so barbara didn't stop the death <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah it's uh it's non-standard but maybe the gods will allow it <laughs> well apparently they do because it now starts to rain <laughs> <laughs> yeah and so yep. toxel points out with death came rain <laughs> yep it's post hoke Ergo propter hoc. You know, after <laughs> this, therefore, because of this. Mm-hmm. Works every time. Yep. And I'd outlock, I want to mention that as the high priest of knowledge, he's really demonstrating his skill because he timed it down to the second. <laughs> yep. Oh, and this, I have a note here that I wanted, I wanted to bring up something about the TARDIS and the show in general. The TARDIS always visits places that are in crisis. And I think the reason that it occurred to me here is because of Oddlock's timing. And this is a different kind of timing. The TARDIS always visits places that are either in crisis or that the crew, by arriving, precipitates a crisis in. Uh, So I'm wondering, is this the machine intellect that they referred to in the episode, uh, The Edge of Destruction? Uh, Is it doing its own thing? It is, and it does thread through the history of the show, and I have strong opinions about this. Um, I feel like it is clear that the TARDIS has awareness and does things like we're talking about here, where it it puts the doctor in a place that he needs to be to help correct a problem. Mm -hmm. I do have an issue in the modern series, and specifically there's an episode written by Neil Gaiman that a lot of people really like called The Doctor's Wife, and The Doctor's Wife refers to the TARDIS, in which mm-hmm. the TARDIS actually uh, takes a human form and, and we get to interact with her. And these things are made very explicit. And, and now, I've said I'm not going to talk about what I think about episodes ahead of time, but we'll be like 90 before we get to this. So you'll probably have forgotten by then uh, what I said. I do not like them being explicit about this. I like it being a kind of vague mystery. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, sometimes sometimes the less you know, the better. I know a lot of people were upset by the midichlorians in, in Star <laughs> exactly. Wars. Yeah. Um, personally, I I thought they were fine because there's kind of a there's a lot of different literature that deals with the mitochondria, but that's <laughs> that's neither here nor there. Um, but uh, okay, that's, that's good to know. So if the if the TARDIS ends up being the Doctor's wife and they're going all throughout time, I wonder. If the TARDIS is actually Susan's grandmother, <laughs> well, I don't know. We'll worry about sounds that. Like later. A, sounds like a better idea than what they did. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I will say someday maybe we should do the Star Wars films or the Star Wars prequels. Uh, I, I think, uh, but but that might truly be the end of the podcast. <laughs> mm, yeah. Well, for for listeners, I would say until we get to that point, uh, I would recommend uh, Red Letter Media's Mr. <laughs> Plankett reviews on those movies. Uh, they're pretty e extensive. Uh, so it's funny you recommend them, though, because they don't exactly go with your view of the prequels. Well, I, you know, I, I enjoyed the prequels in stupid fun kind of way. But, <laughs> but there's a lot of valid criticism in there. Yeah. In there. yeah I, um Oh, all sorts of stuff I'd love to talk about, but we will we will wait until some future season where we can delve <laughs> into those. Okay, uh, back to Doctor Who. Tlatoxel demands that Susan be punished for her earlier thing that you mentioned, where where she got upset about this uh, sacrifice. And Barbara decrees a new rule: no one shall be punished for an offense done in ignorance. She's ready to rewrite the entire system. But I'm also going to point out, I mean, that's admirable. I understand. But you know what? Um, if you murder somebody, but you didn't know murder was illegal, we we still hold you responsible for that. Yeah. <laughs> that's like the uh, the old Steve Martin bit. Uh, I forgot armed robbery was illegal. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but I understand her, you know, desire to liberalize things. <laughs> so because rather than have Susan be punished... Otlock says he will take her to the seminary to be educated in their ways. And this is also a way for them to say the actress, Carol Ann Ford is now going to take a two week vacation. <laughs> Very good. And we see, we saw the first vacation was in the last story where the doctor disappeared for two weeks in, in right. one, uh, the upcoming story, Barbara will disappear for two weeks. Like it clearly the thing here to understand is by modern standards, they were doing a ridiculous number of episodes mm. um, every year. So they were just working like crazy. So they didn't have the option that you would have in a modern TV show where the show is going to stop for a few months between seasons and everyone can go on vacation and everything. You just had to take vacation during the show because it just never stopped. Huh. And and there are ways that that will come to impact uh, seasons of Doctor Who and, and everything we will talk about as we get there. Okay. So at this point, Tlatoxel decides Barbara is a false goddess. And he turns to the camera, and in true Richard III forms, if you've watched the Shakespeare play of Richard III, Richard III breaks the fourth wall regularly to talk to the audience. So Tlatoxel turns to the camera and says, and I shall destroy her. <laughs> and that's the end of our episode. <laughs> So before we get to the next episode, I will mention that we have now spent twice as long talking about the first episode as the actual episode took. And I think that's a real indicator of this story 
there's no way with the stories we've covered up to now that we could do that. There's only so much you can talk about someone spending five minutes running through a forest or jumping across <laughs> a chasm. And this story is just so jam-packed that there's so much to talk about. Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty dense. And I, I, think, I think we're planning to discuss that in more depth later. <laughs> yep. Okay, so next episode, The Warriors of Death. Tlatoxel is ready to destroy Barbara, and we switch to Barbara and the Doctor in her throne room, which is next to the tomb, but separated by that door that has now been locked. And Barbara is clearly shaken by what's just happened, because she tried to prevent the death of this person, but the person then jumped off the edge of the building. And interesting thing here, the doctor has no sympathy for her. He just rips into her for interfering <laughs> in this. He says, because she tried to prevent a human sacrifice, now all of their lives are in danger. Which is true. He, he did tell her, don't, don't do it. <laughs> right. I think what he's saying is, now, because of what she did, Tlatoxel doesn't trust that she's actually the god, which means they could all be killed. Yeah. The doctor seems to imply that this is a uh, a consequence of of Barbara's action, but actually, uh, when Susan is sent off to the seminary, that actually is Susan's fault, in my opinion, because she's the one who freaked out and ran over and all that, defiled the temple and so forth. <laughs> yep. So Barbara ends up in tears, and the doctor at this point calms down, and they start strategizing about how they can play the priests off of each other. Yeah, he says, the more Tlatoxel doubts you, the more you must convince Otlock that you're Yatoxa. Yeah, and then Tlatoxel suddenly enters the room without warning, and Barbara chastises him. He shouldn't be entering the room of a god without announcing himself. And he's like, well, I don't think you're a god, so I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very, very insolent. And, and this is... This is one of the things that made me wonder about how much he buys into the Aztec religion. Because mm -hmm. uh, if he believed there was even a chance that she really was a god, I would expect a good deal more uh, uh, respect out of him. <laughs> well, I think that's fair. That's fair. And now we have this. Uh, so the doctor exits. And we have this really interesting interaction between Barbara and Tlatoxel, and he begins quizzing her about her knowledge of the Aztec view. He says, how many heavens are there? And she answers him, I think 13. And then he asks her another question, and she refuses to take the bait. She says, look, only the priest of knowledge is allowed to test me like this. Yeah. Which is fair. And his question is kind of obnoxious, too, because it's a, she, she answers, there's 13 heavens, and he says, name them. So, <laughs> you know, it's like, how many people live in Akron? Oh, uh, 200,000. Name them. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. But what I love here, uh, and maybe we'll put in a quote from some of this, their interaction is that of two very smart equals. Mm-hmm. And they play off of each other really well. Yeah, although just about every scene that Latoxel is in is enjoyable in one way or another. He, right. He has a 
he has a whole range of moods and they're pretty uniformly awful. <laughs> what, but what I'll say here, and I think it's what I'm getting at, is everybody else he interacts with, he's smarter than them and he mm. bends them to his will. Barbara is the only person where they are equals and she's not going to take his shit. <laughs> so. Yeah, and that's uh, probably exactly why he uh, is so determined to uh, take her down a notch. Or yeah, many, good point. If, if you're trying to be the alpha male, you can't allow <laughs> someone who's going to challenge you. Yeah. Then we switch to Ian and Ixta in the warrior's room. And this is kind of funny because they're bantering about their upcoming fight, but they're really doing so in a good-natured manner. <laughs> and then Ian says he can defeat Ixta with just his thumb. <laughs> yeah, I was skeptical when he made that claim, but uh, <laughs> I was wrong. After Ian has made his boast, uh, Ixta says, I defy you to harm me. Ian says, pick up your club. And, uh, you know, he takes it as a combat challenge, uh, but actually uh, Ian is just trying to get him to turn so that he can do the Vulcan nerve pinch on him. And that's, I'm not real familiar with Star Trek lore, but I think what he does is something very much akin to it. Yep. And the funny thing about that, to to go into another series we probably won't cover in the show, is Leonard Nimoy came up with the... Vulcan nerve pinch because he didn't want to have a bunch of fights with people. So he said, you know, you know what? I think my race just has this thing they can do where they pinch you and you fall over. Uh, <laughs> that works for me. Yeah. So it's convenient here because literally he just shoves his thumb into the guy's shoulder and suddenly the guy's out like a light. I'd like to learn this technique. <laughs> and I, it was a little weird to me, but it, Apparently, everyone seems to take it as, well, because Ian just defeated him, that settled the idea who's going to be leader. I thought they were just playing around and talking. I didn't realize this would be taken that seriously. And uh, Plutoxel seems to take this pretty seriously. Yeah, and this could be an argument in favor of your stance that Plutoxel really does have at least a measure of belief in the gods, uh, because he he seems a little a little uh, perturbed when he sees how easily Ian uh, defeated Ixta, and of course, if he has been talking back to a real god all this time, uh, that could have some bad consequences for him. <laughs> yep. So Ian, very comfortable in his victory, leaves, and Tlatoxel discusses the situation with Ixta. And a person who joins them, who they refer to as the perfect victim. And I love this title, and, and I hope it's historically accurate. I didn't look into it. But it turns mm. out the perfect victim is the person who is going to be sacrificed next. And in the period between when they've been identified as the perfect victim and when they get sacrificed, they have immense privileges, which is really interesting. Yeah. So Toxel wants to do a rematch between Ian and Ixta, but he can't order it. He doesn't have the power to do that. And then he realizes, but you know, the perfect victim could do it. Right, because he gets whatever he wants. Right. And uh, that actually, uh, he'll take advantage of that again later on in another episode. Right. And Flotoxa says to Ixta, 
All honor and glory shall be yours if you destroy him, Ian. And then we are back to the Garden of Peace with Dr. and Kamika. And she's showing him an herb. Yeah, we're just looking at a bunch of leaves. And she's explaining that this can be used as a sedative you know, mm -hmm. for people to sleep. This is a mild foreshadowing of something that the doctor does a little later with his knowledge of herbs. Herbs, however you pronounce it. <laughs> Right. And yeah, they're again getting on quite well. And once again, he diverts the conversation to talking about how the temple works. <laughs> and she again says, well, she'll arrange a meeting with the son of the builder. Then we go to Tlatoxel and Barbara talking, and he informs her that while her status as a deity is in question, she cannot have visitors. Because they don't want visitors to be able to communicate or pass messages along, etc. And that includes her assistants, the crew. Yeah. And he, uh, she insists, well, better let them know then. And Tlatoxel uh, uh, says very, very obsequiously, they shall be told. And he's utterly lying. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't tell them, and that has consequences. Yeah, not in his interest. Now we switch to a room where Kamika is talking to Ixta, and it turns out that Ixta, Ixta is the son of the person who designed the temple. And I'm not 100% clear. My impression is that the person who designed the temple was Kamika's husband. That was, that was the impression that, that I got. And in fact, from the moment she first started talking about it, she seemed like she was kind of dancing around the subject. Um, and if that's the case, it implies that Ixta is her son. Right. And I, I guess I just, I guess I assumed that so strongly it didn't occur to me that he might not be her son. Yeah, I just, I never put that together. So, but regardless, you know, he's the person that could give the doctor information about the temple. But he is thinking about his fight with Ian and the fact that Ian just defeated him with his thumb. And he wants magical help with this fight. <laughs> That's the kind of guy he is. He'll take any advantage he can get. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's, in his case, he's not the kind of just sneering, despicable villain that uh, Plutoxel is. And depending on what the Aztec culture is like, uh, this may even be completely admirable behavior, you know, this kind of <laughs> craftiness. Mm -hmm. yeah. I'm not sure. Um, and Ixta asks her if the doctor knows who he would be meeting, and she says no. And he then realizes, well, that's interesting, because the doctor might be able to help me. He might be able to give me some magic. In fact, Kamika suggests that. So don't tell him who I am. And I'm going to get him to help me with my fight with Ian. Then we switch to Susan and Otlock talking. This is a, uh, so while she's on vacation, what they would do when someone went on vacation is they would film their scenes ahead of time. And one of the ways you know they're on vacation is because when they did it ahead of time, they wouldn't use video. They would use film. So whenever it's a filmed scene, you know it was done ahead of time. Because what would happen is during the recording of the show, they would then just insert the filmed part. Okay. 
And so we have a pre-filmed uh, thing that we'll come back to several times where she's in a room learning about the Aztec culture. And Altlock says, you have studied the code of the good housewife. <laughs> and I love this because the idea that, you know, the, was it, uh, you know, good housekeeping magazine existed <laughs> at this point in time. <laughs> and what did you, what did you think about what she's learned? <laughs> uh, it seemed like pretty, pretty common sense, unobjectionable stuff. You know, it's stuff like keep the house clean, you know, don't waste money. It's not, uh, you know, it's, it's not, really giving any outrageous instructions about uh, you know, always obey your husband <laughs> although we we will uh we will see that that also is one yeah, of the Yeah, I suspect that, that was part of it. Yeah. <laughs> isn't in the code of the good house. And I believe this was part of the research for this show. So I, I think it's supposed to be real. I did I didn't look up this information. And one of the things she says that I thought was interesting was, you know, keep your pot clean. So the assumption was, you know, every housewife would have one pot that they did their cooking in and mm -hmm. you know obviously you needed to keep that clean so thought oh, that sure. was interesting yeah then someone uh comes in and she she goes up to shake his hand is what happens that's inappropriate she's supposed to stand there and if it's her future husband she's supposed to look down right and of course at that point how, how does she supposed to, how is she supposed to know right. it's her future husband and they say you'll be told <laughs> A person I don't think we've seen before whose name is Tunila comes in and she immediately rushes up to him and shakes his hand and kind of looks away and Altlock lectures her. And again, this feels like research they've probably done on this and I, and I hope it's true, but I haven't looked into it. He says, whenever you're talking to someone, you must look at them and give them your full attention unless it is your future husband, in which case you should look away. And she says, well, how would I know he's my future husband? <laughs> and he says, well, you'll be told. <laughs> and Susan is not happy about this idea. <laughs> not sure. Uh, she's like, how would I possibly just accept someone as my husband because I was told to? And this is going to have some implications <laughs> in the future. Yeah. This particular episode, they seem to handle... With a plum, you know, they, they talk about it later and they kind of just, you know, say she's kind of a willful girl, <laughs> but she, she keeps piling it on as time mm. goes by. Yep. So now, uh, we switch to the doctor finally meeting with Ixta. He does not know who Ixta is. He never asks his name. It's a little funny. He never asks who he is, what his name is. You know, he remains blissfully ignorant. He only cares about getting the information about the temple. Ixta is in his leopard cap uh, warrior thing, which is really cool. Yeah. yeah, where the where you know his entire head is encased with this leopard's. I don't want to say uh, his entire head is encased in this leopard sort of hoodie, <laughs> <laughs> presumably a real leopard. Yeah, and he says, "Look, I'm going to be fighting with another warrior, and I need help." And the doctor says, well, I can help you defeat this other warrior if you will give me the information about the temple that I need. And I think this is really funny. The doctor really thinks he's pulled off something here, where in fact, Ixta is completely playing him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, the doctor thinks, oh, yeah, I've set up this situation. I'm going to get what I want. You know, it doesn't matter that I'm helping him with this fight. Has no idea that Ixta knows more than he does. Yeah, and actually Ixta's playing him in two ways. One, that he doesn't know that it's Ian that he's fighting. And the other uh, is that what he's bartering turns out not even to exist later (laughs) on. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. So after Ixta leaves, um, Doc, the... After Ixta leaves, the doctor, I think, thinking about what Kamika had told him about the plants, he starts playing around with one of the plants in the garden and clearly speculating on how this could help Ixta in his fight. Yeah. It's kind of, he he drives a cactus needle through the stem of another plant and that thereby poisons the the cactus needle. Now we switch to Ian in the warrior room, and he's practicing fighting with one of those bats, whatever. I'll, I'll leave the pronunciation to you. <laughs> Ixta comes in and challenges him to a barehanded fight. Now, we've already seen Ian defeat him with a thumb, so ideally a barehanded fight is going to be in Ian's favor. Mm-hmm. Ixta, in an aside, tells to <laughs> tells to lot. Oh, boy. Plot <laughs> talk. Tlatoxel. Okay. And then Ixta, in an aside to Tlatoxel, tells him that he can kill Ian if Tlatoxel would like that. And Tlatoxel says, let him die. <laughs> so he's all for Ian getting killed. Yeah. Then we switch to Barbara and Otlock, and Otlock doesn't know what it's all about, but if Barbara says there shouldn't be more human sacrifice, he trusts her as a god, and so he's willing to say there should be no more human sacrifice. She gives a little speech here about what she sees in the future, which, of course, she's benefiting from the fact that she's from the future. Yeah. She foresees a dark future of droughts and famine and more and more people being sacrificed, up to 10,000 in a day, and then the end of their civilization. And Otlock takes this very seriously. Uh, he, you know, he believes whatever Barbara tells him, in this case, the truth. Then we switch to the doctor and Ixta talking again. The doctor shows him how he can use that thorn with the poison on it to slow down his enemy. It won't kill him, but it'll slow him down so that Ixta can then take care of him. Yeah, he has two rules. He says, scratch him on the wrist and don't scratch yourself with it. <laughs> Good idea. Ixtra promises to return in the evening with drawings of the temple. And then we switch to the two priests. And Tlotoxel is saying he wants Otlock to question Barbara again. And the funny thing is, while they're having this conversation, in a very very Shakespearean form, they hear other people coming, so they hide themselves so they can overhear. This happens over and over again in Shakespeare plays. (laughs) And the doctor goes by, and he goes in to see Barbara in her throne room. And as we know, but the doctor doesn't, he's legally not supposed to be there because she's now supposed to be isolated from everyone while her deity ship is in question. Right. And he talks to her about what he's doing with Ixta, and she realizes he's just helped Ixta against Ian. (laughs) 
And the funny thing here, this takes about 20 seconds or 30 seconds, and then the doctor leaves. <laughs> Literally, he came in to deliver a plot point, and he leaves. And my note here is this is like the opposite of padding, the opposite of a termination episode. <laughs> like they have so much to cover that he just comes in, says his bit, and leaves. <laughs> yeah. Shortened to the point. Yep. And when he leaves, Flotoxel, who never told the crew that they were not allowed to visit Barbara, has the doctor seized for breaking the law because he visited Barbara. Then we switch to Barbara and Otlock, and Barbara demands the doctor's release on grounds of ignorance. Otlock says he'll look into it. Barbara then says she forbids the fight between Ixta and Ian. She's getting very pushy, and Otlock's mm -hmm. like, eh, nothing you can do about that. <laughs> so, there are limits to her power. And now it is fight time between Ian and Ixta. Yeah, and this, this one's a big improvement over the last one. Yeah, it's a wrestling fight, and there are no stunt doubles. And unlike um, a fight we'll get to later, they don't, like, cut back and forth. Like, you can actually see what's going on, which is the yeah. way, you know, I think a fight should be. Mm -hmm. And it's not looking good for Ixta. You know, Ian is wiping the ground with him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And the funny thing is, the doctor is brought in by guards, and he sa he yells to Ian, don't let yourself get scratched. And Ian gets distracted and looks over to him, which gives Ixta the perfect chance to scratch him. <laughs> <laughs> and then Ian wants to make sure that we, the viewer, see the blood from his scratch, so he rushes his wrist up to the camera <laughs> so we can see the blood, which I thought was kind of funny. Oh, yeah. It's kind of like when he uh, when he ducked under the uh, Dalek's weapon to yeah. accommodate him. <laughs> yep. But even though he's been scratched, Ixa is still losing. Ian is still throwing him around. But over time, Ian starts getting woozy. Ixta starts getting the better of him. Looks like Ian's in trouble. Barbara shows up and she's essentially violating her house arrest. She's supposed to stay in the throne room until her deity ship is resolved, but she comes in and she stops the fight. But Ixta is not willing to stop. He's got his bat. He's about to whack Ian on the head and kill him. And Tlatoxel says to Barbara, if you are Utoxa, save him. <laughs> He uh, he delivers it uh, very uh, very well or very evilly. <laughs> Checkmate. Yep. But uh, but then at the end, this is where the episode ends, of course. And I instantly developed a plan in my head of what Barbara should do, and it turns out Barbara does most of the plan that I so brilliantly <laughs> conceived. Okay, well, we will get there. That's the end of the episode. Next up, The Bride of Sacrifice. And this episode is The Bride of Sacrifice, and uh, we're getting titles over a black background. We've been getting those uh, with this story arc, and it's something that uh, uh, I think this may be the first time that it's happening in the show, because previously they would give us a sort of... Uh, freeze frame or at least somebody mm -hmm. holding mm -hmm. still put the titles over that so it's a little bit of a difference next to his weapon his cricket bat is raised 
about uh, about to Kelly and if Barbara is indeed the god Dutoxa, Thotoxel uh, challenges her, save him. <laughs> and so she does uh, more or less what I thought of, uh, which is uh, she grabs a knife and holds it up to Thotoxel's throat. Now, my own variation was just stabbing him through the heart, which would be kind of poetic justice considering Yeah, but it would job. end the story a bit early. <laughs> <laughs> but she does at least hold it up to his throat. Uh, so so it's a, it's a pretty good strategy. Yeah, and I thought it was funny because as she's holding the knife to his throat, she says, those who serve me shall not be punished. And Flotoxel, being a realist, says, so be it. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody apparently the referee. I, th- I think that might have been the uh, the assistant knowledge priest. I don't recall, uh, but but he says uh, he declares that Ixta did not win after all, possibly because uh, Yataxa is just so PO'd. Um, <laughs> it's not really clear why he finds yeah. against him. I felt like he won. I mean, he was about to cave in Ian's head, but you know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he did. He did win through cheating, but it's kind of established that nobody really cares about that. <laughs> but I guess because he didn't actually end up caving in his head, he didn't win. <laughs> oh, okay. Maybe that's the reason. <laughs> then we switch to Tlatoxel and Ixta talking, and. Before this, uh, Tlatoxel didn't know what Ixta's plan was, what he learned from the doctor to, to scratch Ian. And Ixta explains to him what he did with the thorn. And Tlatoxel essentially says, this isn't magic, it's just the old poison thorn trick. <laughs> <laughs> and Ixta tells him the doctor was really interested in knowing how to get into the tomb. Then we switch to Barbara and Otlock, and Otlock says, when he told you to save him, we thought you were going to do a miracle. <laughs> and Barbara says, why should I use divine powers when human ability will suffice? <laughs> that's, a, that's a fair point, although yeah. a miracle would have been more persuasive. <laughs> and she learns that the next sacrifice will be in three days when there's going to be an eclipse of the sun. And Barbara says, and Flotoxel, of course, will offer human blood so that the sun will shine again. And she kind of accusatorily to Otlock says, but you know the sun will shine again. And Otlock says, well, unless the gods withdraw their favor from us. So he buys yeah. into the idea that we need to do a sacrifice because if we don't, you know, maybe it won't happen. Yeah, yeah. And that's uh, kind of interesting because, you know, he, he can predict the eclipse. So you'd think he must know enough about celestial mechanics to know what's going on there. So, I mean, uh, but then again, if a, if you're dealing with a genuine God, then stopping the moon or whatever is no big deal for the gods. So <laughs> he's got a point. <laughs> mm-hmm. So Barbara says to him, look, you need to support me because the toxel can't defy both of us. And I, this is a really tragic moment and, and, and ultimately not a good thing for Barbara. Otlek says, if I take that course, there's no way back for me. So essentially, Barbara is condemning him if he continues to support her. Yeah, putting him at risk. Yeah. And, and this is the thing that I think is, is maybe the most important statement of the entire story. 
Outluck says to Barbara, I beg you, do not deceive me or prove false to me. Mm-hmm. And it's like, ouch, because she is lying to him. Yeah, she's doing it right now. Yeah, she's not you're, the you're God. soaking in it. And he's saying, everything, you know, er, my entire life is going to be over if you're lying to me. And she is lying to him. And okay, you know, let's see how that goes. <laughs> yeah. So now we have the doctor and Tlatoxel talking in the garden. And Tlatoxel wants to have him do something or another. And the funny thing is the doctor just waves his hand and says, oh, go away. He's so tired <laughs> of this guy. I got a good kick out of that one, too. And Tlatoxel says, well, what is it you want from the tomb? Because, you know, Ixta told him that the doctor keeps asking questions about the tomb. The doctor says, well, what is it you want from me? And Tlatoxel, being very honest, says, I want but one thing, proof that she is a false god. And here's another line I really like. The doctor says, I serve the truth. Help me, Tlatoxel, and I promise you, you'll find it. Kind of an ominous thing, because he's not saying that he's going to prove Barbara's a false god. He's just saying Tlatoxel will kind of get what he deserves, I guess. <laughs> yeah, he'll, he'll find the truth. <laughs> yeah. We switch to Ian and Ixta. Ian is laying on the ground, having been knocked out by Ixta. He wakes up and sees that Ixta is ominously sharpening a knife. <laughs> Ian says that he cheated with that thorn trick. And I really like this. Ixta says very reasonably, didn't you yourself tell me to use stealth and to surprise the enemy? The answer is true. <laughs> yep. <laughs> That's exactly what he told him. And then he ins- surmises the doctor helped you. And Ixta says, your friends make strange allies. <laughs> and I like that Ixta, Ixta always pronounces it. He doesn't say Ian. He says Eon. Like yep. he said a name that's unfamiliar to him. Yeah. Nice little touch. And now Ixta is being very friendly. And he says, look, now that I prove that I can be the victor over you, we can be friends for the little while left that you have to live. <laughs> <laughs> He's gracious in victory. Yeah, really nice guy. Tlatoxel <laughs> <laughs> uh, comes in, talks to Ixta, says he wants the tomb drawings that he's promised to the doctor. And Ixta now drops, you know, a key point. There are no tomb drawings. None exist. The secrets of the tomb died with my father. (laughs) (laughs) And then Ixta says to Ian, stealth and cunning, Ian. So again, Ixta has applied what Ian told him (laughs) to the doctor. So Ian kind of really screwed himself by giving this advice to Ixta. (laughs) (laughs) Then Tlatoxel is talking to Tanila and Tlatoxel tells him he wants Tanila to use poison on Barbara. And he presents it as, look, this is just a test of her godliness. If she's a god, she won't die when she drinks poison. And he says, would you deny yourself the glory of seeing the gods proved before your eyes? (laughs) Yeah, of course, the only risk there is that the gods will know what you're up to and get really, really angry. (laughs) (laughs) But Tanila starts out skeptical, and he's convinced by this argument. Then we're to Otlock and Kamika talking. Kamika is really happy. Now she has a new boyfriend, (laughs) the doctor. She says, he is a gentle companion and most dear to me. (laughs) And uh, he he has been kind of laying on the charm. Yeah, He's also been uh, 
he's also been really digging after that information about the tomb. <laughs> but, uh, you know, there's probably, uh, who knows how many hours of pleasant garden conversation we may not be privy to here. <laughs> and then Otlock says something that seems odd. He says, have you obtained cocoa beans? <laughs> and Kamika says, well, I've been to the market. And Otlock suggests that she prepare the beans as a love potion. But she says she wants the doctor to prepare them for her. Okay, we don't really know what this is about. <laughs> then we see the doctor and Kamika talking in the garden. And the doctor greets her more cheerfully than any other person we've seen in stories so far. He really clearly likes her. And then he points to this sign or mural on the wall of the temple. And he says, what is this? And she tells him it's a sign of Yatoxa. Now, the doctor, being a servant of Yatoxa, you'd think he might know the sign <laughs> yeah, of Yatoxa. <laughs> yeah, that's a little, a little bit surprising there. <laughs> and Kamika has this bag of cocoa beans, which she now spills on a bench. And I, I don't, was it, did she spill them by accident or on purpose? I'm not clear on this. <laughs> yeah, I, I kind of. I kind of got the impression that it was deliberate to draw attention to them without actually just shoving them in his face, but uh, it's not <laughs> entirely clear. And she explains to the doctor, we use these to barter for our daily needs. And the doctor says, what a great idea, a currency you can drink. You know, I can stand behind that. <laughs> if I could yeah. eat money, that'd be cool. <laughs> <laughs> You'd be broke, but it'd be cool. <laughs> <laughs> Kamika says, so you know our custom. And the doctor, maybe a little getting ahead of himself, says, yes, my dear, of course. <laughs> and Kamika, just to bring the point home, says, the drinking of cocoa has a special meaning. And the doctor, totally not getting it, says, yes, of course, it's a rare delight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she, uh, she gives him several opportunities to clarify that he really does understand the cultural significance of it. and uh, <laughs> But, of course, he already knows the significance of it. It's cocoa. You drink it. Everybody mm -hmm. loves cocoa. <laughs> and he insists on preparing it for her, which she likes. And she says, my dear doctor, I will accept with all my heart. And he totally doesn't pick up on what Yeah. Even then, he's just like, oh, yes, this is how, how delightful. <laughs> <laughs> so then we're with Barbara and Ian. And Ian says, look, Tlotoxel is planning something. I overheard some things. And Barbara says, he's dangerous. He has a way of bringing people around to his thinking. And <laughs> here's my thing. It's like, well, Barbara's trying to bring people around to her thinking. <laughs> so no, <I'm> sure. <laughs> but Ian points out, look, these people agree with his point of view. Yeah, he uh, he describes uh, Otlock, who has by now pretty well established himself as an honorable man. Uh, he he describes him as the odd man out. Mm -hmm. He's he's not representative of these people. He's he's the exception. Mm -hmm. Barbara's response is to get pissed that Ian and the doctor have been disagreeing with her. She does not want dissent. She wants her way. And like, oh wow, okay, so you became the god, you became the leader, and all of a sudden everybody needs to do what you want. Okay. <laughs> So she and Ian have a good debate here, and it sort of ends with Ian saying, look, you can't fight a whole way of life, Barbara. You know, you can't fight this entire people. This is what they think, and you can't change that. 
Someone is coming, and again, in Shakespearean fashion, Ian hides in the background, mm -hmm. and Tlatoxel and Tonila approach bearing a gift, which is, you know, the something for her to drink. Tlatoxel mm -hmm. wants to share this drink, and then they're all going to be great friends going forward. He's, he's going to bury the hatchet, so to speak. Yeah, and this is where Ian does the uh, the old familiar trope of standing behind the people and jump out, jumping up and down, waving, <laughs> trying to get her attention and warn her away from it. Yeah, so she, uh, it looks like she is willing to drink it until she sees Ian's warning, and then she has a good idea. She says to Tlaxel, "You drink it first. Yeah. <laughs> Turns out he's not willing to do so, so the jig is up. <laughs> yeah, and after he refuses, she offers it to Tanila, who also turns it down. So that uh, it's pretty, uh, pretty convincing evidence there. <laughs> and she uh, she goes into full goddess mode, and she says, "So this is your friendship. You defile this temple." Uh, very, very fiery little speech there. An interesting thing here, and, and I'm going to say, I think in my favor for Tlaxel being actually religious, he seems stunned. He he staggers out. He bends over the altar. And it seems like maybe he's now not sure whether she's a god because she detected this deception. Maybe she is the god. Yeah, I I, I didn't take that from the scene, but I can I can see it, sure. Yeah. Now that you mentioned it, I can see it. Now, I don't know why Barbara did this, but she comes out and says, look, I'm not a god. That yeah, poison would have killed me. <laughs> <laughs> that That is an interesting little strategy there. I'm not sure uh, if it, it may have just been that she was just getting so fed up with all the <laughs> lying and play acting and so forth. I'm I'm not sure where that was coming from, but it's out now. And interestingly enough, he... Clotoxel plays along with it for a while, at least to the extent where he's not hes not just going around telling people, she told me that she's not Yatoxa. He's still trying to do the more subtle and cunning ways of destroying her. So that's well, kind of And part of that is, Barbara says, if you do anything, if you say anything, I will have the people destroy you. Yeah. So she's and playing hardball. <laughs> yeah, there's a, there's a chance that she... Could pull it off, too. <laughs> so we're back to the doctor and Kamika in the garden. They're sharing their drink of cocoa. <laughs> Kamika says, this is the happiest day of my life. So, you know, she must really like good cocoa. <laughs> <laughs> and then she says, I acknowledge and accept your proposal. <laughs> we get this <laughs> zoom into the doctor where he does effectively a spit take where he's like, what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He doesn't actually spit the cocoa. That would have been a nice touch. But uh, <laughs> but everything up to that point is a classic spit take. <laughs> he just gets all wide-eyed. It's, it's good. Yeah. <laughs> so now Plutoxel and Tonila are talking. They're scheming what to do. Plutoxel says, what do we do about Susan? And Tonila says, well, you know, I was there when... She said she wants to choose her own husband. And Flotoxel says, that's interesting. Let's find her a husband. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and he says, Yutoxa's weakness lies not in herself, but in her servants. So this is going to be his new plan of attack, rather than 
going at her directly. He's just going to try and pull the supports out from under her one by one. Yep. So we're back to Outlock and Susan with Carolyn Ford being on vacation. <laughs> so this is pre-filmed. And Outlock is quizzing her on what she's learned. While he's quizzing her, Tonila and the perfect victim come in. Clearly there's a plan here. The perfect victim looks at Susan and says, I wish to look upon her. And then he says, I shall take her as my bride. So clearly this is a setup because she said she wants to choose her husband. She objects to him being her husband. Yeah, and it's not clear that she's objecting because she doesn't find him appealing. She seems to be objecting mainly because he's due to be a sacrificial victim, and she <laughs> finds that barbaric. So marrying somebody who's about to be killed, maybe not the best. <laughs> and, you know, she gets very explicit. She says to Autok, you're monsters, all of you monsters. Yeah. I find it a little odd because this marriage plot line just totally disappears after this. It doesn't come back. Well, I think the reason for that may be that she's made herself eligible for punishment by objecting. So uh, at this point, she's no longer fit as a candidate to be his bride, I yeah, would think. Could be. Could be. So now we're back to the doctor and Kamika in the garden. She gives him a gift of a token, a little round thing from the tomb, which is going to become important, and indicates that she's looking forward to a life of bliss with him. And at this point, he knows what's up, and he agrees. <laughs> and he says, mm -hmm. yes, why not? We'll have a garden of our own. <laughs> yeah, and he does really seem to like her. I, I, uh, and she is likable, I think. Yeah, so, you know, it's... Of course, we know just from the format of the show that it's probably not going to end up all rosy for everybody. But uh, Yeah, you know. we'll talk about it more. I feel like he's leading her on because yeah. no matter what goes on, he knows he's not going to stay here. Right. But he's implying yeah. to her that he will. Yeah, yeah. And I think, I think we'll have more to say about that. Uh, at <laughs> least I will, and no doubt you will as well. <laughs> So now Barbara and Tlatoxel and Tanila are talking, and Barbara forgives Tanila for trying to poison her. And uh, I like that she uses the royal we. She says, Tanila, we freely forgive you your sins against us. <laughs> now, she doesn't know what's happened with Susan, talking about marriage. So Tlatoxel sets her up by saying, what is the punishment for one who speaks out against our teachings? And it turns out the punishment is they should be scourged and ridiculed and their tongue and ears should be pierced with thorns. Now, Barbara objects to this as a punishment for someone she's not aware of. She doesn't know as Susan. But then they say, well, it's going to happen during the eclipse. And she says, okay, as long as all my servants are there. So I think she's trying to set up a situation where they can escape. Well, somebody else gets, you know, <laughs> thorns put through their tongue and ears. Yeah, and uh, Slow Toxel is at his greasiest here. He, <laughs> uh, he affirms that, yes, the, the two men and the handmaiden will all be present. <laughs> of course, mm -hmm. the handmaiden is the one who's going to get pierced. Mm -hmm. So now the doctor and Ian are talking, and I don't really understand this, but from the token that Kamika gave him with Yutoxa's, picture on it 
Somehow the doctor has derived that the sign on the wall in the garden is an entrance to a tunnel to the tomb. Yeah, it's not it's not entirely clear how he deduced that just because the seal presumably has the same picture on it as the wall does, uh, that that's a tunnel. Although it could be one of those Sherlock Holmes things, you know, when you've eliminated all the impossible or however that goes. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Now, funny thing here is that the doctor acknowledges to Ian what he's just been through. He says, yes, I made some cocoa and I got engaged. <laughs> <laughs> so he knows what the yeah. deal is. Yeah, Ian gets some good laughs out of this. Yep. Yeah. He thinks it's a hoot. Barbara and Otlock are talking, and Otlock being influenced by anything Barbara says, he agrees to stand with her against the upcoming sacrifice, even though that goes against his beliefs. And then he spills to her that Susan is the one who's going to be punished. She doesn't want that to happen. And Otlock says, will you sacrifice us to save your handmaiden? So a key point in this story. Ian and Ixta are sleeping next to each other. Ian opens his eyes, assumes Ixta is asleep and sneaks off. Turns out Ixta's not asleep. He follows Ian with a knife. <laughs> well, I think maybe Ixta was asleep, but he uh, very conspicuously steps on a bundle of something, maybe a pillow or some kind of folded up something. I don't know what it is, but he steps on it and makes a noise, and I think that wakes Ixta <laughs> up. Okay. So Ian reaches the doctor in the garden. It's at night. The doctor is trying to move the seal of Atoxa that is on the building, but he can't do it. So Ian does it. He works very hard to make sure that this styrofoam thing seems heavy. <laughs> yeah. But I'm going to say, for styrofoam, it looked really good. They painted it really well. I would have no idea that it was styrofoam if it didn't seem to be about two ounces. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it looks good. Once he has it open, Ian insists on going alone into the tunnel. He doesn't want the doctor to come with him. So the doctor waits while Ian goes into the tunnel. And then Ixta shows up with the doctor. And he notices that the tunnel is open. And he says, oh, I need to move this thing back. Because this is a waterway. This tunnel is going to be flooded. Now... He knows that Ian is in there, and he knows that he is consigning Ian to getting drowned, but he goes ahead and puts it back in place. Yeah, and indeed the water does start filling the tunnel, <laughs> just as fore foretold. <laughs> yeah, Ian is trapped. It occurred to me that I've seen this flash-flooding tunnel gimmick uh, a couple places in Chinatown and in the video game L.A. Noir, and thinking about it, this whole story arc has kind of a noir feel to it, you know, sort of an Aztec noir. So mm -hmm. uh, uh, it's kind of appropriate. And that is the end of the episode. Ian is about to be drowned. Next up, the Day of Darkness. So Ian is in this tunnel. Water is now flooding in. He's going to be drowned. But he finds a manhole in the ceiling and shoves it aside. And this part, a little unclear. He either crawls or climbs along a passageway. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's very dark. He's kind of in a spotlight that just shows him. And uh, 
it's got to be a pretty affordable set because mm-hmm. for all I could tell, they could have just filmed this in a parking garage <laughs> or something. Yeah. So we're back in the garden with Dr. and Ixta. Ixta has just closed up the passageway knowing that Ian is inside. The doctor pleads with Ixta to open the passageway. And Ixta thanks the doctor for providing his final victory over Ian. He's totally happy to have cheated in any way he could <laughs> to defeat Ian. Following Ian's own advice. Yep. <laughs> So Ian, having found his way out, now crawls out from under the resting place of Yatoxa's corpse in the tomb. And I'll mention the designer was embarrassed because he didn't know they were going to do that. So where Ian crawled out from was just raw, unpainted wood. And it's like, yeah, we would have painted it or made it marble or something. (laughs) Yeah. But now Ian is in the tomb where the TARDIS is. That's been their whole goal. Yeah. But he needs to get everyone else in the room. So he robs the corpse there of some more material to help pull the door open. In particular, he gets ribbons and ropes that he can put under the door as a handle so they can pull it open again. Once he gets through, Barbara and the doctor show up, but they're missing Susan. And that's going to be Ian's job to go off and get her. Yep. And Tlatoxel and Ixta are talking. Tlatoxel tells Ixta to guard Susan. Ixta seems rather happy at the prospect, uh, maybe assuming he can get some extracurricular activities out of it. Yeah. Flotoxel leaves, he, and then Ixta sends the other guards away while Susan is there, and then Ixta gleefully tells her that Ian is dead. <laughs> yeah, but she doesn't even really get time to burst into tears. <laughs> because Ian sneaks up, and as he makes a remark... Good commanders don't jump to conclusions. He knocks out Ixta. (laughs) Yep. And then we switch to Barbara and the doctor. And she seems to have finally started accepting things. She says she admits that history has not been changed. And the doctor says, no rewriting. And she seems to agree with that. The doctor looks at the tomb door set up and says, what we need is a pulley. And Barbara says, but the Aztecs don't have the wheel. Now, I have to tell you, I've never looked into this. I'm a little skeptical. I should research it. It's a little, I just need to understand how a society this advanced wouldn't have the wheel. You know, I'm not sure, but I think uh, I think maybe the ancient Egyptians didn't have the wheel either. Mm. Uh, I think sleds were used for a lot of things that we mm. might use carts for later. But as to whether the Aztecs didn't have it or did, I can't say for sure. (laughs) Ian and Susan now show up in the room. They're all together. But, you know, it's kind of early in the episode for them to be able to escape and end the story. (laughs) So they have to uh, run into more obstacles. Yep. (laughs) They drape the ropes over the throne. And the doctor says, we need to put these at an angle. Yeah, and this this struck me as great nonsense, you know, because given the way the door is set up, it's a door counterweighted so that one person could open it easily if they're on the proper side of the door. It shouldn't be, the most effective way to open it should be just with this cord coming out from the bottom of the door and just giving it a straight pull. The only thing I can think of that might justify this difficulty, aside from it just being an arbitrary 
plot contrivance is maybe the door is so well fitted in its setting that just by being there, the cord itself is wedging the door shut. <laughs> that's that's yep. my best theory I can come up with. So now we're to Tlatoxel and Ixta, and Tlatoxel is rather upset that Ixta lost Susan. He says, she must be in my power. So he says, now I'm going to give you a task. He says, if Otlock finds out that Ian has survived, his belief in Barbara as Utoxa will be cemented. So he says, look, take this weapon that is Ian's weapon and kill Otlock. It's getting serious now. Hmm. I'm not sure. I don't think he says kill. I think he says strike down. But okay. uh, that's the same assumption. <laughs> <laughs> All right. But as it turns out, he does strike him down, but not kill him. So Ian and Susan are in the garden. They're working to open that passageway again. While they're doing so, Susan finds what seems to be Otlock's body. But then it turns out he's still alive. So he was struck, but he wasn't killed. While examining him, Ian finds his own weapon and realizes this is a trap. And of course, the moment he realizes it, the trap is sprung. Yep. Ixta and others come and say, okay, you've, you know, you're the one who attacked Otlock. Otlock gets up. He's totally out of it and shaken. And he says to them, you are the servants of a false goddess. So he has had his faith shaken. (laughs) Tlatoxel and Ixta are talking. Tlatoxel is happy. He's now had a vision of putting Barbara in a three-walled room, then adding a fourth wall. So basically, the cask of Amontillado. <laughs> He's going to let yeah, her starve. Yep. That was exactly what I thought of. <laughs> <laughs> and it's also completely unnecessary, which just gives us another facet of Clotoxel's character. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they could just kill her. Yeah. The Doctor and Kamika are in the garden again. And now the Doctor is kind of casually carving a wheel out of some wood. Kamika, realizing the stress he's under, offers to postpone their marriage. And the doctor says, we need Otlock, but he won't go into the temple now that he doesn't believe in Barbara being Yatoxa. Kamika says she will talk him into it. And then we jump to Barbara and Otlock together. He's there reluctantly. Kamika has talked him into doing this. He's skeptical. He's confused. But ultimately, he still believes whatever she tells him. And she tells him that Ian is innocent. And she points out, uh, it's a fairly simple but logical argument. Uh, she says, of all people, Oddlock, why should I harm you? And yep. it makes perfect sense. She's the one person who's really been uh, by her side or you know, supporting her. So he is persuaded by reason to some extent. He still has doubts, but good enough for now. Yeah, and I would say at this point, I'm not sure he thinks she's Yatoxa. Mm -hmm. But he's willing to help Susan. She also wants him to help Ian. And he says, no, I I cannot save Ian. And we don't know if it's cannot or will not, but he's really not happy with Ian. Yeah. And we're back to the doctor and Kamika in the garden. His wheel is almost finished. Kamika seems to realize that he, that the doctor is going to be leaving soon and they have a nice little conversation where she says, we are a doomed people. And he says to her, you will always be very dear to me. 
seems to be acknowledging how this is going to go. <laughs> yeah. And this isn't actually their last meeting, but it's, uh, it's close to it. Yep. Then Kamika and Otluck are talking. Both of them are unhappy. Otluck says he's now lost his faith in their traditions, but even though he's lost faith in their traditions, he has his faith in Kamika. And he gives her a medal that will give control over all his possessions. Yeah, it's essentially the title to his estate. <laughs> yeah. And he wants her to use it to bribe Susan's guard so that Susan can live. He himself is going to flee into the wilderness. He's, he can no longer be a part of this society. Now we're with Ian and Susan and their guards. They're to be escorted to the temple steps where the sacrifices occur. Ixta says to Ian, we shall have one more meeting, Ian. And then the doctor and Barbara are in the throne room. The doctor is setting up the pulley system for the door to the tomb. Flotoxel comes in to bring Barbara to the altar. At this point, Altluck has fled to the wilderness. Yes, and that's bad news because uh, the plan for Barbara was to order Altluck at the sacrificial ceremony to release the prisoners. Uh, but if he's run off to the wilderness, that's not going to happen. Yep. So Kamika now approaches Susan and Ian's guard with the title to Otlock's wealth, and she offers it to him. He folds without an argument, and he sends away the external guards, but then he wavers on letting the prisoners go. And while he's trying to figure out what to do, Ian comes up behind him and knocks him out. <laughs> <laughs> and Ian gets off a good one here. As soon as he knocks out the guard, he says, well, somebody had to make up his mind for him. <laughs> now, Kamika, being honorable, leaves the ornament with the guard so that he'll still be able to get those riches. And then Kamika and Susan leave while Ian takes off the guard's uniform. And now with Tlatoxel and Tanila, Tlatoxel lays out his plan for taking care of Barbara during the eclipse. When everything goes dark, he's going to go and kill her. And this, this scene looks a little different from just about any other scene. It almost looks like they filmed it outdoors to mm. me. I don't know if that's the case or they had real bright lights or what it was, but it's uh, just got a different uh, tone to it. And the close-up, is close enough that all you see is their faces and busts and uh, some leaves around them. Mm -hmm. So it's, I, I don't know where they filmed it, but it's different somehow than the rest of the show. <laughs> okay, then Kamika brings Susan to the doctor at the throne, and she says to the doctor she's hoping to stay by his side. So I think her feeling is, I've done all this stuff for you. I want to stay with you. We're kind of married now. And he rather cruelly turns away from her. Yeah, this was actually uh, kind of a hard scene to watch. Yeah. Um, and I'll, I'd like to say more about Kamika at the end of the episode. But uh, uh, it's not clear. I, I mean, to give the doctor the benefit of the doubt, maybe he thinks that psychologically this cold shoulder is going to be the the way for her to sever the connection the fastest, you know, do, do a little harm now for the greatest benefit in the long term. I, 
I don't know what he's thinking, but it certainly does seem uh, just uh, thoughtless yeah. in, the, in the moment. And later on in the show, it's totally plausible that she might join as a companion. But at this point, mm. they're not going to do that. We sort of see he's not happy about having to do this to her, but he does it. Yeah. So then Ixta finds the warrior that Ian knocked out. And Tloxel comes in and says, you need to make a sacrifice of him. I'm not quite sure why. I think maybe he's thinking we need this sacrifice for the upcoming eclipse. My interpretation was that he recognized Otlock's title medal and knew that there had been some kind of uh, you know, shenanigans going on there. So so maybe they didn't do him a favor by leaving the title with him. You know, maybe hmm. if they had taken the title, he'd still be alive. <laughs> so Ixla obliges by making a sacrifice of this guy. Then we switch to Barbara being escorted by guards to the sacrificial altar, which is about five feet away from where she started. <laughs> uh, Tlatoxel shows up and... He decides to kill her right now with his knife. He's not going to wait. This is probably the first time in this storyline where Tlatoxel actually takes matters into his own hands as far as actually doing the violence himself. He's perfectly happy to let others do the violence for him, but uh, this, is, uh, this is where he decides it's time to make his own mark. <laughs> yep. But Ian is standing behind her in his disguise as a guard, and he stops Tlatoxel. Tlatoxel calls for Ixta to help him out. Meanwhile, the doctor, Susan, and Barbara are working on getting that tomb door open. Yep, and the doctor has rigged up his little hand-carved pulley wheel into something that, to me, is incomprehensible. <laughs> I, I don't know what it's supposed to accomplish. Well, obviously, it's supposed to accomplish getting the door open, but how it's supposed to accomplish that is not at all <laughs> evident to me. Uh, but it apparently will end up working. Well, so. and I think an interesting aspect of this is once they start using it, you can't actually see it. <laughs> they hide it yeah. behind, behind <laughs> the throne. So they didn't have a mechanism for it to work. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and then uh, this next part is where Ian and Ixta have their final confrontation. An interesting little thing comes in that I think they would have done well to reveal a lot sooner. Ixta comes up to the platform where the sacrificial stone is, and he does it by mounting steps. And this is the only point, as far as I can recall, that it becomes evident that, in fact, this platform has steps going down into the big plaza. Uh, it wasn't, I, I wasn't clear on that up until this point. Uh, it's something that I, I would have liked to see them highlight earlier. I think they were assuming you understood that this was on the top of a very large building with many steps, but they did not establish it, as you say. Yeah. So, yeah. And I've I've seen I've I've seen pictures of the pyramids. I know they do have the steps going up the side. I just didn't put two and two together yeah. until this scene. And so now Ian and Ixta have their final confrontation in their really fancy warrior outfits. And I'm disappointed because <laughs> 
this fight is not satisfying because it's like the Bourne films, you know, that, you know, I love the Bourne films, but one of the things about those is whenever there's combat, you just switch angles all the time and you mm -hmm. can't really tell what's going on. And that's what they do here. It's like somebody's hitting somebody, somebody's raising their shields, or, but you, you can't see what's happening. So yeah. this fight is very unsatisfying, even though it's the concluding fight of the story. Ian falls down near the steps and Ixta approaches him and Ian then raises his legs. And as Ixta runs towards him, he uses his legs to flip Ixta over his head, over the steps. So he will fall down the height of the building and die. Is this the first time in the series where one of the companions where we've seen them kill somebody? Probably true. Good point. The other thing interesting here is, so in order to show the, that this guy is dead, what they did was the designer had him stand against a wall and they literally painted steps below him and then they reversed the shot. So it looks, so when you watch this, it looks like he's, you know, fallen and he's there. In reality, he's standing up against a wall <laughs> and they oh, reversed nothing. the shot. So it was pretty clever. And the fact that they painted in the steps into that was pretty clever. Yeah. Oh, wow. Now I got to go watch that again. <laughs> <laughs> So we switch back to the crew working to get the tomb door open. As I mentioned, after all the pulley stuff, you can't actually see the pulley. It's hidden behind the throne. <laughs> but they do manage to open the door that was previously incredibly easy to open, but it's been very hard since then. Then all of them rush through the door. It closes behind them. The eclipse is now starting. We see the darkness coming. And the guards are trying to get into the tomb but Tlatoxel says, forget that, follow me. He rushes to the altar where the perfect victim is waiting. As the sun becomes obscured, Tlatoxel thanks the gods for his victory and prepares his knife to make the sacrifice. Mm -hmm. And then we cut away from that. <laughs> so Barbara and the doctor are talking. Barbara says, we failed. And the doctor says, yes, we had to. And Barbara says, what's the point of traveling through time and space if you can't change anything? Barbara says she's betrayed Otlock. He is exiled and has lost his faith. The doctor says, well, he found another faith. You failed to save a civilization, but at least you helped one man. <laughs> I can say, well, did she? I mean, she essentially consigned one man to his doom. Well, she consigned him to the wilderness but uh is that a doom i mean maybe you know i mean her, being a hermit is a uh, <laughs> time-honored religious path and uh, i think when he's talking with kamika in the garden he says something about finding the truth out in the wilderness and mm -hmm. uh, so it uh and he does seem like a reflective sort i mean he is <laughs> the high priest of knowledge so uh he might adapt pretty well out there it's yeah, hard okay. to say so before they go into the TARDIS, the doctor has this token that he had from Kamika, and he puts it down next to the corpse, and he starts to walk away. Then he rethinks it, he picks it up, and takes it with him. Goes into the TARDIS, prepares it for takeoff. They land somewhere, but 
it's confusing because the instruments show that even though they've landed, they're still moving. And they debate this and say, well, maybe we're on top of something or maybe we're inside of something. And we will find out the answer next week in the next story. So before we continue to the next story, let's have some general discussion about this one. Yeah. So the morality of this, the doctor says you can't change history, not one line. What do we think about that? And you have Star Trek, which came out in a similar time, and they had the prime directive. If you meet a primitive species, you're not allowed to interfere with how they develop. Yeah. And uh, I got the impression here that what the doctor was saying wasn't so much a moral directive, but a fact of time travel. Like, mm. you just, you can't change it. It's <laughs> You can try, but you'll just end up probably screwing things up for yourself <laughs> if you do that. Yeah, which is kind of what happened here. So another proposition I'll make is that Flotoxel was the bad guy, but he was right about everything he was claiming. Barbara was a false goddess. She was sure. trying to destabilize their society and change yeah. their essential values. So was he the bad guy? Well, I mean, I'll say yes, just because <laughs> that's because that's was that was the director's instructions is to be vile. <laughs> but uh, but beyond that, um, yeah, I mean, from from his point of view, the you know she's coming to uproot the whole civilization um but because he doesn't let her get away with it of course 90 years later uh, <laughs> by which time he's probably long dead and doesn't have to see it all 90 years later the society will be doomed and at least part of that may be because of the practices that the uh the new visitors find barbaric mm -hmm. so in that sense i mean she was trying to warn them, uh, this isn't going to turn out well for you. And uh, he didn't believe her, and she was right. So I'm going to say, yeah, he's the bad guy. <laughs> Let's cut the Gordian knot here. And just <laughs> Interesting thing from the documentaries on the DVDs that I watched. So, you know, 100 or so years later when Cortez showed up, what actually happened was really unexpected, which is the person who was the leader of the Aztecs was Montezuma. Right. He heard these reports of Cortez and his folks, you know, making warfare and mowing people down. And he went to their writings and determined that there was supposed to be a white-faced man with a beard who would change everything. Hmm. And that was supposed to be Quetzalcoatl, hmm. one of the gods of the Aztecs. So when Cortes showed up to the Aztecs, they accepted him and invited him in. And actually, Cortes and Montezuma became great friends. They really liked each other. Hmm. Until Cortes said, will you show me your temples? Hmm. And Montezuma escorted him to one of their temples, which literally had blood all over the walls from the people they'd hmm. killed. 
and the bones of the people they'd killed there, and it stank. Hmm. Montezuma was assuming that Cortez was Quetzalcoatl. When Cortez saw this, he said, we have to stop you, which stop this culture. And a war hmm. broke out. And Cortez had cannons and guns. <laughs> and so, oh, yeah. yeah, they took out the Aztecs without too much trouble. So the, this is an example of what you said about the author of these episodes uh, trying to be faithful to what we can know about the history is that it really was the human sacrifice that doomed the nation. Yeah, that's true. So another question here is, did Barbara actually help Otlock or did she just condemn him? You know, he went into the jungle on his own. Could he live? <laughs> yeah, it's that part of it. We, we don't know what the future has in store for him. And he's, he's not a spring chicken uh, <laughs> at any rate. But on the other hand, he's not, he's not as they say, living a lie. You know, he's, uh, he at least now has a clear idea of what he believes about everything. And, uh, that may be a good thing. It's, you know, that it's really something that only he can decide whether it's ultimately an improvement in his lot. Mm -hmm. uh, of course, if he gets eaten by a jaguar or something, then that would, <laughs> that would argue against it, but we don't know what happens to him. So I am going to gonna argue the idea that Barbara had a, that, the idea that the doctor is proposing that Barbara had a positive impact because one guy is going to go out into the wilderness and probably get killed. Yeah, I don't <laughs> think that's too compelling. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was a very small-scale positive impact. <laughs> uh, what can you do? Yeah. <laughs> so let's talk about design. Uh, Barry Newberry... Oh, wait, was, a minute, no? wait a minute, wait a minute. We skipped it. my favorite topic oh, go for it. Uh, on the morality front, which is Kameka. And I think Kameka is kind of the most, I don't know, maybe not most shabbily treated character because <laughs> she doesn't die, but she really gets the short end of the stick. I mean, basically in one day, <laughs> her fiancé abandons her. Her friend, who is also the high priest and her spiritual advisor, he says, well, I've decided this is all bunk. I'm going off to the woods. <laughs> You'll never see me again. And then the Ixta, who she apparently cares for, uh, and who is apparently her son, he's killed by uh, the buddy of the fiancé who just abandoned her. <laughs> so, and those three things all happen in very short succession. I mean, it's just... To actually try and put yourself in her shoes is a, a difficult thing to do, even, because it would just be devastating, one would yep. expect. And she really never, it's never really played up to the extent that you see her disappointment. She's, uh, you know, grinning and bearing it mostly, uh, just trying to be strong and so forth. But, uh, uh, you know, this is the kind of stuff that really just smashes people to bits. So uh, it's, I think uh, the possible consequences to her were not fully brought out in the show. Yeah. Uh, she deserves recognition, I think. I agree. I think both as an actress and a character, it was very well realized, and she really got screwed mm -hmm. over in this whole process. Yeah. So let's talk about design. Barry Newberry was the designer 
And he was very proud of that rotating door because it was, it was perfectly good. balanced. Also, they had a requirement for any piece of stage item where two people, two men, there were two people, had to be able to carry it. And hmm. it could not be more than like 10 feet long. Hmm. So he was very proud that this door fit into that and that whenever they put it up there, it was perfectly balanced. In fact, it was so perfectly balanced that it messed up the story because it had to close. So they would put weights inside it to get it to close because it would just stay whatever position it was in otherwise. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh-huh. So the door is kind of a technical achievement. Yeah. The other thing is the cloth painting. So he's really unhappy about that because the deal is, you know, well, first of all, actually for this show, they had been moved to BBC's television center. So they actually had a stage that was about twice as large as what they'd Mm. had previously. But given his budget, he couldn't really take advantage of it. He still had to stick to pretty small spaces. Yeah. So they did these cloth paintings for the city of the Aztecs. His expectation was that the lighting person would light this so that and and the director would would film it so that the cloth paintings would be far away. Hmm. But they didn't do that. So for example, there are points where you can see these uh ripples in the cloth. Well, If the lighting person had set the lights up correctly, you wouldn't have seen those ripples. Ah, But they didn't do that. Hmm. So the designer felt like he kind of got screwed on this whole thing. And also, he was stuck with the rules. The rules are that no staging can be less than three feet away from the wall. So he had to, so, you know, the cloth paintings had to be three feet from the wall and they didn't have much space. So they were very close. So it was a very obvious cloth painting. One thing I'll say, if you look at the pictures and everything of them putting together these episodes, it's really kind of amazing because they have a very small space and a very small number of sets. And yet, you know, you get this idea of the garden you get this idea of Barbara's throne room, but those are all very small things and they're moving right between them. So it's kind of a, a a real testament to their skill that they can make this seem like a space where you feel like you know how everything's laid out. Yeah, yeah. I, I thought overall the sets uh, worked real well for me. And then just to make everything as bad as it could be, When they came to filming the last episode, the designer called up, you know, the BBC people and said, well, okay, where's our set? And they're like, oh, we destroyed it. (laughs) So there was a miscommunication. They thought the set was done. The entire set was destroyed. So the last episode, they literally had to make up from scratch and put a bunch of plants in there and other things and just hope that you didn't notice (laughs) that the Mm. previous set wasn't there. The other thing was they went to the artist who did the cloth paintings, and it turned out he hadn't yet painted over that piece of cloth. (laughs) So they were able to reuse it only because they went back to him and said, yeah, we need this cloth. (laughs) 
Hmm. Yeah. They cut a little break there anyway. Yeah. Huh. One of the things this show was always cursed with is whether they were doing a science fiction story or a historical story, they had to create all the props from scratch. But the BBC treated them like any other show and gave them the same budget for props. So in a regular, you know, drawing room mystery, if you want a phone, if you want a couch, you just take a phone and put it in there. You put a couch in there. But if it was Doctor Who, you had to create the phone from scratch. You had to create the couch from scratch. And they had no budget for that. Yeah. So that's why you see the things that you do. And it's always amazing when they pull it off. Oh, yeah. And they did here because, you know, for especially, say, in the Room of the Warriors, it was filled with stuff. They had murals on the walls that looked great. They had great costumes. They really did an amazing job for having basically no budget for this. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it does make you wonder how much of this was stuff people just brought in from the garage and <laughs> painted up and you know, glued mm -hmm. some stuff onto it. But yeah, it's uh, it it all. Uh, I don't recall any moment that the sets really were a liability or a distraction. I mean, you you noticed like the the place where they're lifting the stone slabs made <laughs> out of styrofoam. Yeah, but uh, it's nothing unforgivable. It's all good. Yeah, I would say except for the cloth paintings, everything is great. And once you accept the cloth paintings, you can go along with it. I also yeah. say the music was really good. And honestly, the music for all of these episodes has been good. It's not something I think about a lot. But when you go back and listen, they really did a good job on that. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a, it may be a good sign that I don't recall a lot of the music explicitly. Because you know, music that's drawing attention to itself is drawing attention away from the show. I did notice one thing in this episode and uh there's a couple places where you hear like two or three notes on a xylophone <laughs> and it sounds almost identical to a text notification sound i hear <laughs> on people's phones every now and then so it struck me as amusing <laughs> not their fault though they couldn't predict no, no. <laughs> phones 50 <laughs> years later and yeah. also, on the overall acting, I mean, Barbara was excellent in this. She really took her role and really stood out in a way that very, very few companions will throughout the history of Doctor Who. Hmm. Yes, I mean, she is good, and she's been good in some of the previous episodes, too. But uh, uh, And she does get uh, entertainingly haughty at times, <laughs> you know, in her role as the reincarnated yeah. goddess. So Deciding uh, she knows exactly how everyone else should act. <laughs> yeah. And this is, to me, one of the major differences, let's say, between this and the Daleks. The guest actors here are very strong. There's nobody who does a bad job. I will say maybe except mm -hmm. Tonila. I'm not the biggest fan of Tonila as an actor. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. Yeah. I uh, I don't remember thinking he was bad, but uh, lackluster, I would accept. Yeah. yeah. So amazing guest appearances, and as we talked about, John Ringham, who played Flotoxel, just did an amazing job, and everybody calls him out as really standing out as the bad guy who just takes over this show. Oh, yeah, he's just 
fun on a bun. I mean, he he should have gotten a spin-off series for this, <laughs> I think. You know, the Adventures yeah. of Patoxel. <laughs> <laughs> and I will argue this was so jam-packed. Uh, you know, I'm not a fan of the seven plus episode stories where they have to pat it out a lot. But it was so jam-packed, I think they could have used another episode just to let things breathe. Yeah, I I'm gonna I'm gonna disagree with that, but I think <laughs> that's more my preference is for condensed, concise stuff, you know, the get in, do the job, get out. I don't, <laughs> I don't like to let things breathe. I do, I'm on just the facts. <laughs> yeah, okay. So, but mm-hmm. your, your, your point's valid, though. I mean, it, another episode wouldn't have hurt, I don't think. And it and would have been a chance to see more uh, Plutoxel. <laughs> kind of oddly, I think they may never do five episodes. I don't know why, because they do like seven episodes, et cetera. So they're not opposed to odd, but I don't think they ever do a five-episode story. I might be wrong about that, hmm. but certainly rare. So in conclusion, let me talk about the Doctor Who community reaction. I think this is many people put this in the top ten of all Doctor Who stories over the last 50 years. So it has been received pretty well by the community. My own reaction, and honestly, much more so now watching this this time and more closely, I think it's a pretty amazing story. Almost nothing I can think of that I would take out. As I said, I would maybe even add an episode and make it longer, which is almost unheard of (laughs) for any (laughs) Doctor Who story. I think that the actors nailed it. The writer nailed it. Everything was great. And it brought up a large number of really interesting questions that the series would struggle with over the next few decades. So uh, I'm a huge, huge thumbs up on this. But, you know, for normal people, you are the one to decide whether they should watch this. What is your thoughts? <laughs> or what, um, what are your thoughts? <laughs> I'd I'd give a thumbs up to the whole storyline, you know, all four episodes. I'd say uh, I'd say they're worth it. I mean, that's the premise of this show is worth watching, and uh, <laughs> and this storyline is, in my opinion, worth watching. Uh, you know, of course, Cl- Clotoxel steals the show <laughs> a lot of the time, but uh, as you mentioned, all the actors have their own good things going on. The story is tight. There's there's a couple filler scenes. You know, there's the fights. A couple of the fights could go on a little shorter. And <laughs> then there's Ian crawling through the uh, crawling through the water tunnel that uh, takes a little longer than it should. But not a lot of filler stuff either. It's just uh, it's just mostly pretty focused. A lot of twists and turns, and some you can see coming, and some you can't, and. Some you think you see coming uh, are actually, you know, like when Otlock, he mistrusts Barbara, starts to mistrust Barbara, and then she just uses plain reason to point out to him that, you know, she's not entirely untrustworthy. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, so there's just a lot of fun stuff, and it's fit into four episodes that move by pretty fast. It's good. I say thumbs up. Wow. Next up, 
is going to be the sensorites. And here's the most frustrating thing about this project for me. I want to be able to text you and send you things about a story ahead of time. But in mm. order to keep you unbiased, <laughs> I can't do that. <laughs> so I am really looking forward to what you think of the sensor rights. Very good. 